So I am especially excited this morning for a couple reasons. Uh, one is because we had Matt and Grace with us, which I was definitely looking forward to that. Um, another reason is because this is the official start to the UConn semester, and uh, I, I saw some of our more regular UConn students that we haven't seen in a while uh, on, uh, on uh, Friday um, at a Husky Wow, and uh, unfortunately they had some things going on and weren't able to be here this morning, so, um, but hopefully we'll be seeing more of them in the future, and hopefully we'll be seeing more UConn students in general here. Um, one of the, the things that uh, has motivated this church since its inception has been to be a, a light to the university community. And uh, uh, that, that desire is definitely still here. And as I was preparing this message this morning, I was thinking a lot about uh, university students and how, how applicable the Proverbs are to all of us, really, but especially to those of us who are just kind of uh, getting started in life. And uh, so... I'm excited that we're entering in, into that season, uh, and I'm also excited because of this new, this new series, uh, Uncommon Sense. Uh, over the next month and a half, we're going to be looking at the book of Proverbs, uh, which is a collection of ancient wisdom sayings, and we're going to be talking about what that wisdom has to say to us about a bunch of different areas of life, uh, about what it has to say to us about our work, about uh, marriage and sex, about friendship, about how we speak to one another, and about our family lives, and maybe a few other things too. So my hope and prayer is that as we go through this series, uh, we will all be gaining practical wisdom for how to live our lives. Because I really think that all of us need that. Life is hard. And every day we are faced with challenges and choices that we have to make. And life does not come with a very clear instruction manual. Uh, and sometimes I wish it did. Um, I think the closest thing that we have is the Bible. Um, but it's interesting that, uh, you know, when you think about life, I was thinking about how, you know, my friend just this morning, his, his wife had a baby and he was sending me pictures of that baby. And I thought, they're going to take that baby home in a day or two, and you, you, don't, you don't get a manual where this is what you do with this kid. And this is, this is a person that, that, like, what's more important than a person, right? Um, but that's the, that's the way life is. I mean, there's so many decisions we make, so many choices that we make that have tremendous implications. And if we're just relying on our own wisdom and our own strength, we're going to struggle. There's no doubt about that. We are, we are not naturally wise. As much as we might not want to admit that, we are not naturally wise. And I think that this age that we're living in right now actually presents us with some unique challenges when it comes to acquiring wisdom. Challenges that uh, previous generations didn't have maybe quite as much. And one of those is that we live in an age where we have more information available to us than probably any other time in history. I mean, absolutely any other time in history. And you might think, oh, that will help us to gain wisdom, right? That's, that seems like a logical deduction, but there's so much information, and so much of that information is false. And so when we're presented with all that information, it can be hard to sort through it, right? And know what's right and what's wrong. 
Uh, this, this cartoon here, I think, is a great expression of this fact. Uh, somebody says, are you coming to bed? And uh, the person working on their computer says, I can't. This is important. And then they say, what is it? And he says, someone is wrong on the internet. And the first time I saw that, I, I laughed out loud. One, because there have, de there have definitely been times where I have been that guy, uh, losing sleep because I'm trying to persuade something of somebody of something that I think is true. And two, it's, it's ridiculous because if we lost sleep over things being wrong on the internet, none of us would ever get any rest at all, right? Um, so we have access to more information than any other time in history, but with that, we also have access to more false information than any time in history. And so sometimes, rather than aiding us in the acquisition of wisdom, all this, all this abundance of information just allows us to reinforce false beliefs that we already have. Um, because when you have an enormous amount of information to sort through, you're naturally going to gravitate towards whatever confirms your, your biases. Um, and the reality is that the internet has made it possible for us to th find people who think like us and reinforce our beliefs, even if those beliefs are incredibly outlandish and unsupported. You will be able to find somebody else out there, some community that can reaffirm you in your beliefs, however illogical or amoral or whatever they might be. So <clears throat> that's one unique challenge that we have when it comes to acquiring wisdom right now. Another special challenge that this time in history presents us with is that there is a reluctance to admit that real wisdom even exists at all. And this is something that Matt was hitting on a little bit uh, in his presentation. Uh, another way of putting it is that some people think that the only real wisdom there is out there is the assertion or the acknowledgement that there's no right answers to be had. Um, there's a quote I found that I think represents this kind of thinking well. It says, everyone's truth is their own truth. Everyone's belief is their own belief. None are wrong. None are right. They just are. I think it's funny that are is in quotes too. Like, um, to deny someone their truth is to deny yourself of yours. So does that perspective sound familiar to you guys at all? Does it sound like the kind of thing that you hear? I have definitely heard people like talking like this. And uh, I think this sort of um, wisdom, which is often viewed as enlightened thinking, is really a form of anti-wisdom. Uh, it's, it's not enlightened thinking. It's more of a darkened thinking. It's a, it's a futile thinking. Because what it's saying is that there isn't really such thing as wisdom. Right? There, um, there isn't truth out there that we can acquire and learn and grow and, and, and become in greater conformity with reality, some sort of reality that's outside of us that we learn about it. Um, it's just basically saying that the only truth is that you just need to accept all truth claims as equally valid. And the irony here is that this quote in itself is self-refuting when you think about it. Because if everybody's truth is truth, what about my truth that says this is not true? Does that count for anything? I don't see how it could if this is true. But uh, my point, anyway, is that this kind of thinking is very prevalent today, and it undercuts our search for wisdom. So those are two unique challenges that we face. And I don't know about you guys, but 
in this world that we live in, with all this misinformation and competing truth claims, and people who claim to be wise that stand in the middle of it and say, all truth is relative, my soul longs for real wisdom. You know, I have a hunger for objective truth about the way life is and how I should live, how I ought to live. And that is what the book of Proverbs professes to be for us. Uh, it starts off with these words to describe its purpose. So this is chapter one, if you want to follow along in the Bible. Uh, this is right at the beginning of the book. It says... The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Here's the purpose. For attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. Excuse me. So this is a book that wants to offer us objective truth about the world and how we're supposed to live in it. It wants to give us insight and understanding. And I want us to notice that it's for two kinds of people. So the author spells out who his audience is. It's for two kinds of people. And the first kind is simple and young. Simple and young. Now, something that we'll want to recognize as we're going through parables, through the Proverbs, is that the material is typically arranged in couplets. And the, the couplets have a relationship to each other. So it could be a parallel relationship where the first half of the couplet and the second half of the couplet are essentially saying exactly the same thing, just in different ways. Or it could be an opposite couplet, where the first couplet is saying the opposite of the second half. And right here, these uh, couplets are in parallel. So simple and young, well, this couplet right here, uh, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Uh, you can see that uh, giving prudence or prudence and knowledge and discretion, those are in parallel, those are the same thing. And then likewise, simple and young are supposed to be the same thing. No offense to the young, but... Um, so that's the first kind of people that the Proverbs is for. And then the second kind of people that the Proverbs are for are the wise and the discerning. Okay, so the Proverbs have something for everybody. Right? If, you're, if you're just starting out in your journey of wisdom, this is for you. And if you've been around the block many times, if you've been studying the Bible all your life, again, this is for you. Now, I want to comment briefly on this term, the simple. Because it actually shows up a lot in Proverbs. If you read through the book, you're going to find it many, many times. What does it mean to be a simple person? Well, the word that gets translated here as simple comes from a Hebrew, Hebrew word, uh, which is pronounced pethe. And it, is a, it comes from a verb that means to be open. To be open. So you might say that a pethe is somebody uh, whose options are open. A person whose options are open. Or a person who is uncommitted. 
And remember, Pefe parallels young, so that makes a lot of sense, right? Because when you're young, your options are open in regard to the future. You are usually uncommitted in regard to what your career is going to be, what you're going to value in life, uh, whether or not you're going to get married, who you're going to get married to if you're going to get married. The future is open, possibilities, uncommitted. And the Proverbs are aimed especially towards people who are in that state, the simple the uncommitted. And, and what they say is, as you go forward, commit to this knowledge, commit to this wisdom uh, in, your, in your life. Be simple no more and commit to these things. And as I was reflecting on this term, the simple, and uh, its meaning, I realized that for a long time, I wanted to stay a pefe. Uh, throughout most of the, my 20s, I really, really hated the idea of getting older. And I realized that the reason I hated the idea of getting older is because I hated the idea that my future would not be a wide-open, infinite array of possibilities. Um, you know, when you're a kid, people tell you, oh, you can be anything you want when you grow up. And I like the feeling that, yeah, in the future, I can be anything I want. And I also like the feeling that everybody else thought that that was true of me, too. And so the idea of getting older was always this threat to that wide-open array of possibilities. And I, as I reflected on it, I thought, oh, that's the desire to be a pefe and to stay a pefe. Uh, it doesn't help, too, that um, according to my Myers-Briggs personality test, I am what's known as a high P. Are you guys familiar with the Myers-Briggs test? Has anyone taken that? Raise your hand if you've taken it. Okay, so now the, the Myers-Briggs test is not gospel, okay? Uh, a lot of people de debate its validity, um, but it's always been interesting to me. So the Myers-Briggs test, uh, you get results along four different axes, and the last one, you're labeled as either a J or a P, which stands for judging or perceiving. And J's are people who like to make commitments. They're people who like to know what they're going to be doing with their day, and they like to even have like a five-year plan where they know where things are headed, okay? P's, on the other hand, are people that just love the idea that the future is wide open, that possibilities are abundant, that they don't know what's going to happen in five years, and they like it that way because that means anything could happen, and that's more fun. So. I scored, when I took this test in my 20s, I always scored very, very high in the P category. Now, J's are not necessarily more moral, better people than P's, or vice versa. Okay? It's just a, a, a way of expressing tendencies that our personalities have. Uh, but if you're a J, the good news is that you are probably more likely to commit to things and not be a pefe forever. Uh, you're probably responsible, you're probably organized. The potential downside, though, is that you might be kind of rigid and unwilling to uh, follow God's leading into unexpected places if God is leading you in that direction. Uh, likewise, with being a P, there's potential downside and potential upside. Uh, the potential downside of being a P is that you just try to stay a Pefe forever. You just never commit to anything. 
Uh, the upside is that you're flexible, and maybe if God pulls you in an unexpected direction, you're willing to go there. Um, but what the Proverbs tell us, whether we tend to be more of a J or a P on the Myers-Briggs, is don't stay a Pefe. Okay? Don't remain uncommitted throughout your life. You might have a desire to leave your options open, uh, especially if you're a P on the Myers-Briggs, but you don't want to live your life that way forever because possibilities are worthless if none of them are ever actualized. Have you ever thought about that? Like, if you, if you, just, if you love possibilities, but po you never pick a possibility and then work towards that becoming an actuality, then what you do is you just end up doing nothing. Right? And your possibilities, if they can never actually become actualities, are, are nothing. They're just abstract ideas that don't count. Um, now, for any of you here who are young and are uncommitted when it comes to a career, a program of study, a spouse, I want to be clear, I am not telling you that you should just rush to make up your mind about those things. Um, uh, that can be irresponsible. Um, but what I, what, what I am saying is this. I'm saying be careful not to let your desire for open possibilities keep you uncommitted when there really are good options for you to commit to. And does that make sense? I'm trying to balance both those things. And, and here's the key. Especially don't let your desire to be a pefe keep you from being fully committed to the Lord. Because I think that happens too. Um, I think a good term for this is spiritual procrastination. That's uh, a state which I think is fairly common where we procrastinate on living a fully engaged life of faith um, because the idea of full commitment to Jesus makes us uncomfortable because we want to leave our options open. Right? We want to feel like the future is wide open, like we could go any, any direction. We don't want to miss out on any fun. So we hold back. And sometimes I think that fear of commitment, that desire to leave the future wide open, uh, sometimes we mask that behind doubt. So um, we'll hesitate to live a fully engaged life of faith and and even though commitment, fear of commitment is at the root of that, we mask it behind, oh, I'm just not really sure about this Jesus thing. I'm just not really sure if Jesus and the Bible can be trusted. I have these doubts, so I'm working on them. I'm thinking about them. And that, that becomes spiritual procrastination. We just keep putting off, putting off, living a fully engaged life of faith. And we stay a pefe. But God wants something better for us. So, the Proverbs are for all of us, uh, but especially for any of us that are currently uncommitted. And the Proverbs offer us wisdom for life, wisdom that's, that doesn't say, oh, here is a truth, but says, here is the truth. And what I really want to focus on this morning is where the book of Proverbs tells us that we, we need to start when it comes to acquiring wisdom. So this is verse 7, and it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. 
So what this verse is telling us, and this is so important, is that the key to acquiring wisdom, the key to gaining real knowledge, starts with this quality called the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. Now, what does that mean, to fear the Lord? Well, when most of us modern people hear that phrase, fear the Lord, it sounds to us like it's saying we're supposed to dread God, that we're supposed to be in terror of God, that maybe we're supposed to feel unsafe around God. And if we're familiar at all with the Christian gospel, that can be confusing to us, right? Because the gospel tells us that God loves us. Uh, It tells us that he was willing to give his life for us and that nothing can separate us from his love. And so those two things can seem kind of contradictory. We're supposed to fear God, but at the same time, we're supposed to feel secure in his love for us. So how do we reconcile these things? How does that make sense? Well, I think what we need to recognize is that fear of the Lord, when it's used in Scripture, it doesn't really mean terror of the Lord. Uh, The word for fear has much more of a connotation of reverence than of terror. Uh, To have fear for the Lord is to revere the Lord. It's to honor the Lord. It's to have a desire to please the Lord. And I think we can get some real insight into what it means to fear the Lord by looking at the second line in the couplet of this verse. Remember I said some couplets are in parallel and some are opposite. This is an opposite one. It says in the second part of the couplet, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. So this is a case where you've got opposite statements, right? So it's saying that the opposite of fearing the Lord is despising wisdom and discipline. So when we fear the Lord, we welcome discipline. And another way of putting this is that we welcome God's correction. We welcome God's correction. To fear the Lord is to be open to being corrected by God. That's at the heart of what it means to fear the Lord, to be open to being corrected by him. It's, it's a willingness to say, God is God, I'm not, and I need his wisdom to lead me, not my own. That is the place that we start in order to gain wisdom, according to the scriptures. The fear of the Lord, the openness to being corrected. Now that sounds very simple, uh, but it's not an easy thing for us to embrace at all. Uh, Because we like to think that we can understand the world and our place in it on our own terms um, and in our own wisdom. But we really can't. And there's one thing recently that has helped me to uh, get over my own pride and recognize my need for God's wisdom. Uh, And that thing is observing kids. So... Let me explain this. Uh, Kids often perceive things very incorrectly. And uh, they often think things that are very funny to adults. And I have been exposed to this less than any parents in the room. I know any parents here know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, I went on a trip to Italy once with some friends that had a three-year-old daughter. And she was very, very excited to go on this trip. And when we got to the airport in Italy, 
she got very, very disappointed, and she kept saying, this isn't Italy's house. This isn't Italy's house. And then when we were actually um, in the countryside of Florence, we, we, had, we were walking through a, um, a, uh, a town, and the town overlooked a vineyard, and she, she walked over to the wall, and she got all excited, and she pointed down at a little house uh, in the vineyard, and she said, oh, there's Italy's house. And I thought that was so cute. I didn't even correct her. I just went like, yeah, there it is. There's Italy's house. And, you know, I don't really know what was going on in her mind, but my guess is that at that age, she just couldn't really understand the concept of a country. And so when she thought of places, she, th she thought of them in terms of houses. Uh, and so if we were going to Italy, we must be going to Italy's house. Italy must be some sweet grandmotherly woman who has a house on the other side of the, the country. And that's why the airport is such a disappointment, you know, because where's grandma? Where's the cookies? <laughs> like, this is, this is not what I was envisioning at all. Um, and after watching Angela do that, uh, and other things like that, throughout that whole trip, I started reflecting on my own childhood and things that I thought that made no sense at all. But at the time, when I was a kid, they completely made sense to me. So like, one thing I remember is that for some reason I assumed that my family members all had the same middle name as me. Because we all had the same last name, so why wouldn't we have the same middle name? Now, I don't know why it never occurred to me, well, we do have different first names, so you know, this is kind of a 50-50 chance here on the middle name thing. But I can remember being a stubborn little kid and arguing with my mom and being like, no, your middle name is Nathaniel. And she was like, no, it's not. And I was like, no, but it is. I don't know. I don't, I don't understand what was going on exactly in my head, but I was just utterly convinced of that. Another really weird one is when I was super little, I remember we went to a house that was being built. And so I saw it like just the studs you know, coming up and we walk through it. And I guess I was really fascinated by that. And after that, I kept asking my parents, when is our house going to be built? And I didn't mean, when are we going to move to another house and have that built? I basically just meant, when is our current house going to look like that with the studs? You know, just all stripped down to the studs. Weird, right? I, I don't know why I thought that, but I did. Here's another example that maybe you can identify with. Um, I was a big Disney fan as a kid. And that, that D in the Disney logo, that was never a D to me. I never saw a D when I looked at that. That was a backwards G. Now, I, to this day, when I see a Walt Disney logo, I still see a backwards G. Like, I have to think about it to go like, oh yeah, there's the D. Because it was imprinted on my mind in that way when Disney was really important to me as a kid. But if you said to me, if you said to me, okay, what is that there? I would probably say, oh, it's a G. It's a backwards G. But I knew that Disney was not Gizney, right? I knew that, but I just assumed, no, that's, that's what it is. I don't understand it, but that's what it is. So anyway, um, my point is that as children, we think things that when we are kids, they make perfect sense. And when we get a little older, we go, that was absurd. 
you know? And if we are parents, we, one of the joys, I assume, of being a parent is laughing at your kids doing all this stuff and thinking about, oh man, how far have I come? Um, so here's the thing. If the gap between a child's mind and an adult's mind is, is that pronounced, isn't it reasonable to assume that the gap between God's mind and our mind would be at least comparable, if not vastly more wide, right? And I think that God wants us to think about things that way because he likes to use the metaphor of him being our father and us being his kids. He does that all the time throughout Scripture. So there has got to be things that uh, we as mature grown adults think perceptions that we have that sound as funny to God as a three-year-old saying, there's Italy's house, you know, or as illogical as me arguing with my mom that our middle name is the same thing. There's got to be things that are like that. Now, I'm not saying that God has designed us to be completely inept um, and totally out of touch with reality, but I think that if he wants us to think of our relationship with him like a parent and a child, then it makes sense to think that there is at least a comparable gap in perception uh, between us and adults, between him and adults, and children and adults. Um, and when you think of it that way, okay, there really is an absurdity to us trying to live by our own wisdom rather than God's wisdom. Because it's kind of like a five-year-old saying to her parents, I know better than you, and then proceeding to try and lecture them on how to handle money and uh, how to um, handle their sexuality and, and uh, have healthy work habits and all that sort of thing. Uh, if, if a five-year-old was doing that for their parents, we would think that's really absurd. But that is what we do every day with God when we don't submit to his wisdom. We are like the child saying to the parents, oh, I know, I know better. I know better than you. Now, I realize that for any of us here who might be a bit skeptical about the Christian faith and its claims, the elephant in the room here are, are these questions. Um, how do we know for sure that what ri what's written in this book is actually the wisdom of God? And uh, how do we know for sure that there is a God who has spoken wisdom to us? And I think those are very fair questions. I'm sure, Matt, on campus, you probably encounter stuff like that all the time. I know when I was in campus ministry, those are very, very common questions. Uh, and those questions deserve more of a response than I'm going to give right now. Um, but here's my quick advice if that describes the state of your mind right now. My quick advice is this. First, start by acknowledging your own limitations. Uh, so recognize we are all finite beings. We all have a perspective that is extremely limited. It's limited by time and place and culture. Um, there are ideas that seem great 200 years ago that to people today sound ridiculous. Uh, there are things that we think now that would have seemed totally out there and like a complete um, abandonment of common sense to people 200 years ago. 
right? And there are things that we think now that will probably seem ridiculous, well, less than 200 years from now, probably 10 years from now. Um, and so recognize that. Recognize my perspective is limited as a finite, uh, fallible human being. So that's number one. And then second, let's just recognize that if there is a God, God's perspective is not limited in the way that ours is. Right? Be a reasonable thing to think. Uh, God is not finite like we are, so God has access to wisdom that we do not have. So if you're dealing with doubt about the Christian faith, maybe for you, the fear of the Lord just starts with you acknowledging these things. Uh, to summarize it, it starts with you saying, my perspective is very limited, and if there is a God, God's perspective is far superior to mine, so if God's wisdom exists, I need it. Okay, that's that's the, the humble starting point. If there is a God, I need his wisdom. My, his wisdom is going to be better than mine. Now, if that's your starting point, my follow-up advice is this. Be open to the possibility that the book that we look at uh, every, every Sunday, the Bible, reveals the wisdom of God. And specifically, this book that talks about wisdom that we're going to be looking at over the next month and a half. Uh, you do not have to be certain of that before exposing it yourself to it, before uh, getting into it. You, uh, you don't have to be certain of that in order to come here. You just have to be open to that possibility. Uh, for you, that's how you can start practicing the fear of the Lord, that willingness to be open to God's revelation, including his correction. And as you expose yourself to the wisdom that's in Scripture, I encourage you not just to hear it, but to try it out, to, to practice it. Um, and as you do that, compare it to the wisdom that you're getting from other sources, the wisdom that you get from entertainment, uh, from politics, from music, uh, Hollywood, etc. Because a lot of that wisdom, not necessarily all of it, but a lot of it is extremely different, different <laughs> from what you're going to get in the Bible. And I think you'll find that there is a wisdom that comes from the scriptures that is uniquely refreshing and life-giving and true to your life experience that you will not find in those other places. But you don't need to be convinced of that in order to try it. And you don't need to be sure of that in order to humbly acknowledge that if there is a God, his perspective is going to be far superior to yours. So I encourage you to just start there, be open, expose yourself to this wisdom, and try it out. And if that's your situation, I will be very curious to hear how it goes for you. Let me know. You know, tell me. And I want to close this morning with one uh, final quick encouragement. Uh, one of the great things about God is that he actually wants to give us wisdom. Uh, like a good parent with a child, he desires to impart to us the knowledge that is going to help us to understand the world and to live life well. He does not want to withhold that from us. There's a lot of things about your life where you might not be sure what God's will is, but this is one thing that you can be certain of, which is that God wants you to be wise. Uh, James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, 
he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. So what a beautiful promise that is, right? If we lack wisdom, we should just ask. Because that's one thing that God gives generously. That's one promise that he gives us. He wants to give us this wisdom. He doesn't want us to stay pethes. He doesn't want us to fumble through life cluelessly. He wants us to know how life works. And he wants us to be shrewd and insightful and perceptive. Um, and that's why the fear of the Lord opens the door to wisdom. Because he already wants to give it. It's just that we have to have the humility to receive it. And to recognize I'm open to being corrected by this wisdom that God wants to shower on me. So as we go through this series in the coming weeks where we are seeking wisdom from the Proverbs, let's start by adopting that posture of the fear of the Lord. Let's be open to the correction of God, because if we are, that will release a flood of wisdom in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you want to provide us with a, an awareness of how the world works and uh, how we can flourish in it. Um, I thank you, Lord, that you don't want to leave us in the dark. I thank you that you want us to know what's up, to know what's going on, and to be able to sort through uh, all the misinformation that is around us every day. God, we do ask that you would give us wisdom. I pray for any of us who who doubt that your wisdom is even out there for us to know. Um, I pray that we would just humbly recognize that if you are there, that, uh, that your wisdom is vastly superior to ours. And I pray that we'd be open to the possibility that it is there for us to know. And for those of us who do trust in you, God, um, I just pray that you would give us the humility to be open to your correction wherever it might lead us. Because we know we can trust you. Because your love for us is real and was demonstrated through Jesus and through his incredible sacrifice on the cross. I give you thanks, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.